Welcome to Through the Line with me, Andy Barjuri. Have you ever been in a situation where you have been going into a meeting with a procurement team when you've been trying to sell your agency services and you feel like you're just not quite prepared well enough or you're just not sure how to negotiate or or there's plenty of nagging doubts when you're dealing with procurement because let's face it as marketeers as agency owners typically we're really good at the service we deliver and we struggle somewhat on the business side of running our agencies so I invited Mike Lander from Piscari onto the show to look at How do we get better at dealing with procurement? Honestly, it doesn't sound like a really exciting podcast, but it's full of information. It's absolutely packed full of value. And I really can't thank Mike enough for how much he shares on this podcast. Thanks very much. Enjoy the show. Mike, good morning. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, morning, Andy. How are you? I am really good. How are you today? Yeah, very good. Thanks. Very good indeed. Good, good, good. Welcome to the show. I'm pleased you've joined us because this is an avenue or an area that uh, most agencies, I think, know not a great deal about, but it's increasingly important for how they run their businesses. And that's the world of procurement. And so um, I'm really pleased you've joined us to give us a bit of an insight as to what this world looks like. Yeah, pleasure. No problem at all. But why don't you kick off by telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do and kind of how you got to where you are, because you've got a really interesting entrepreneurial background. Yeah, thanks, Andy. Um, yeah, so um, if people look at my kind of LinkedIn profile, um, they'll look at the the history and wonder, you know, kind of how did I end up where I am today? Because it's not a linear um, kind of career. So I started my life uh, back in the day as an engineer. Um, I... Uh, so I'm very kind of, if you looked in the kind of like the heart of me about kind of like you know, what I am as a person, uh, very process oriented, uh, I'm very data driven, very numeric, um, and um, I'm very kind of like uh, projects, uh, project management uh, oriented and very commercial. Okay. Where that's from is, is that engineer, left school at 16, did an MBA, um, did my degree first, uh, and then did an MBA. Uh, so I went from engineering, uh, kind of project management into banking and um marketing, uh, which was quite a departure. Um, I then ended up working with a lot of big consultancies. So I was kind of trained in consultancy skills by McKinsey, by PwC, and then I spent four years at KPMG running wow. change programs. Yeah, it's, it's really great experience. What a great place to be schooled, I suppose, McKinsey. Exactly. Yeah. Better, to be honest, you know, that kind of like, um, when I was trained by McKinsey, um, they were running a big project at Barclays Bank. And I was on the client side and they wanted client side consultants. And so the deal was that they basically agreed to train a number of us client side consultants in consulting skills. And it was amazing. It, I mean, they, they are a truly talented organization. Mm, um, no question. And what that kind of consultancy, the reason it's relevant to my kind of story is, is those consultancy skills that I picked up over a period of about probably, you know, seven or eight years, I guess, um, are all about you know analysis, you know building a hypothesis, uh, looking at the data, working out what the logic is, uh, and then working out what your kind of story is. Um, and many years later, uh, I ended up becoming a kind of procurement director, so running for organisations, you know, two three hundred million pound a spend for organisations, negotiating across all sorts of different categories. So I used to negotiate on buying marketing services, um, professional services for consultancies legal services, uh, accounting services, banking services, all sorts. And and one of the reasons that I kind of uh, got into that was um, we were running at the time a procurement consultancy, which provided outsourced procurement. So okay. our clients would engage us to run their procurement department. Is that outsourced. quite common or is that something new you'd, st- you'd set up? I would say that, that um, it is quite common. Uh, there are a number of organizations that do that. Um, and they either outsource all of it, which is unusual, or in the procurement world, um, there's kind of two what we call kind of major categories of spend. So one is called indirect spend, and one is called direct spend. And the reason they're important is um, if you take, for example, Tesco, you know, Tesco's direct spend, bananas, apples, you know, loo roll, uh, anything that basically sits on the shelves. That's what we would call direct spend. And the indirect spend, so most of your kind of like clients, most of your agency uh, contacts, 
would be in what we call indirect spend. So marketing services sits in indirect spend. Got you. Okay, so direct is product, product sorry, and indirect is basically support services that enable you to provide that product. Yeah, okay. And if you looked at a P&L, then yeah, between revenue and uh, gross profit, that cost of goods sold, that's the direct spend. And then between gross profit and net profit, all the overheads, that's the indirect spend. So that's crudely okay. how it works. So, so Mike, what's interesting actually is, is already I'm learning a few things from you here about procurement. And I've worked in marketing agency landscape for about 20 years. So just these kind of this terminology is expanding my vocabulary in term, in the world of procurement. So I guess that's what would be brilliant through this show is really to 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 help agencies understand how to speak the language of a procurement professional. What are the kind of what are their characteristics? What are their needs? What are the kind of tools and techniques they use to negotiate? That sort of stuff would be really incredible to to explore here. No, but, but, uh, I, yeah, let's do that. But I think we kind of jumped out of your story a little bit, didn't yeah, we? Yeah. <laughs> so what happened was basically, I ended up um, being in large consultancies, uh, getting trained by them. Uh, I then went freelance. So I went as a freelance consultant for many years, about seven or eight years, just kind of selling myself as an individual. So, you know, again, some of your agencies might be kind of like, you know, one man band starting up. Some will be 30, 40, 50, 100 people. Um, but they normally started with one person, you know, you know, man or a woman sits down one day and says, I'm going to like build my own business. Um, no question. That's how loads of them started. Yeah, yeah exactly. That, that, that's how I kind of started. You know, I started as a freelance consultant um, and then something weird happened in about 2006. Um, I was a freelance consultant. I'd been freelancing for about five years, six years with a, uh, a medium-sized consultancy. They had about 30, 40 people. Um, and I knew them both because they were ex-partners at KPMG. And I was sitting and having a, a, a curry with uh, one of the partners one day. Uh, and uh, he said he wanted to sell the business. And I said, I'll buy it off you. And he kind of choked on his curry. Uh, <laughs> Mike, did it, did, how much thought did you apply to that i'll buy it off you is it kind of a oh that sounds good yeah go for it or had you been thinking about that for a little while I've had it for ages so i'd been okay. thinking about buying a business for quite a long time um because i'd realized that and this might resonate with your audience quite a lot the problem that most uh entrepreneurial businesses face is there are these big kind of thresholds getting beyond self so getting beyond just you is the first big challenge that normally comes when you find a kind of like a slightly bigger client. They love your work and they want a bit more. So they might want, for example, if you're an SEO consultant, they may say, well, actually, do you do PPC? Yeah. Like, well, actually, I've got a great associate of mine that does that. And they say, OK, fine. Why don't we engage them through you? Because you're on our preferred suppliers list. Yeah, you're already set there. up. Yeah, you're already set up. And so that's how a lot of small agencies start. And then they get bigger and bigger doing that but a lot of a lot of organizations don't they remain one person organizations and what i realized was um in order to get to scale the quickest route to that was to buy a company and so it happened that this consultancy i was working with uh wanted to sell and um, i'd been thinking for a while of buying a consultancy and this opportunity came up um and i ended up doing a deal with them where i borrowed about three million pound off bank of scotland Back in 2006, when you could, as an entrepreneur, um, <laughs> unsecured. So there was no security on the loan at all. Lovely. Uh, no personal guarantees. So my house wasn't on the line. Um, and I put in £150,000 worth of equity. Uh, and they put in £3 million of debt. Uh, and I bought this business. Um, That's incredible. Okay. Well, you, you definitely would struggle to do that these days, I think. But You definitely would. Yeah, yeah. you definitely would. Uh, and then I went on a journey of running my own business. I got it from about 10 million turnover to 20 million turnover, about 4 million pound of uh, net profit. So great business. Uh, and then I diversified. So I ended up also getting into schools. So no one looks at my LinkedIn profile, they'll wonder you know, what on earth happened. I ended up building a special needs school from scratch. Um, so I went on this kind of diversification journey. And to cut that, long that couldn't be further away from a procurement consultancy, could it? Couldn't be further away. You're quite right, Andy. <laughs> and uh, one of my lessons learned that I talk to lots of entrepreneurs about is um, focus. It's like, you know, <laughs> my, first, my, my first boss always said, stick to your knitting. And that was the way he would you know, focus on what you know, do it really, really well. Correct. And I, I think I think especially 
uh, now uh, in this market uh, and in the foreseeable future. Uh, clients buy niche expertise. You know, unless they're buying IBM services, um, they're buying niche expertise. Yes. And so, you know, my lesson from that was don't get, don't stray too far from the core. So stick to your knitting, I think, is actually a very, very good uh, analogy, definitely. Um, <laughs> so, so that's quite a rich tapestry of experience there across procurement, different services, but different consultancy backgrounds. But that, yeah. that procurement expertise there, building your, or buying and then building a consultancy, doubling it in size is pretty, is pretty great, really. Um, and that's I kind of, that's where we want to tap into. That's the vein of expertise we want to, we want to explore today. Exactly. Uh, so, so I know right now as well that you're also kind of, is this right? You're kind of like a, a freelance chairman for hire for agencies yeah. with that kind of top level help, aren't you as well? Correct. Um, yeah. So, so I chair a company called ReSignal, which is an SEO and content uh, marketing, uh, digital marketing agency. So I'm their chairman. And then I work with a number of other agencies as kind of advisors. So yeah, I always operate in that landscape. Yeah, perfect. So, so you're well placed to to advise our community, or at least give them some pearls of wisdom. So let's talk yeah. about um, let's talk about you know what does it what does that typical procure, procurement professional look like? You know what's the, what are their kind of skill sets? What's their mindset? What um, what gets them out of bed in the morning? Sure. So if, if you looked at a typical procurement person, so let's say you're selling into, I don't know, um, BP, and you're selling marketing services, so you're talking to their indirect uh, procurement team, um, they'll have people called head of category. So the first thing you'll find out is if you look on LinkedIn, so whenever you start to talk to procurement inside your target client organizations, just you know find out who that procurement person is and look them up on LinkedIn and look at their history. So the first thing you'll notice is they're probably called head of category. So it might be head of professional services. If the company's big enough, like BP, they'll have a head of marketing services. So they'll be what we call the category lead. Okay. In terminology, they call them categories. The next thing you'll see is, if you look at their LinkedIn profile, um, the time to kind of get really focused is, if your category lead in marketing has also worked in direct spend, so in Shell or in BP, Let's say um, they've bought lubricants, for example, or they've bought uh, plastic containers for lubricants. Um, they'll have done direct buying because obviously a, you know, a carton to hold lubricants goes onto the shop shelves and they'll buy millions of cartons mm. per annum, if not hundreds of millions. If they are now working in marketing, so they're now the category lead for marketing, what's happening is inside BP, they're saying, we're going to kind of train you and develop you um, to be maybe the chief procurement officer, the CPO, either for a country, for a region, or globally. And to do that, you need to have worked in direct spend and indirect spend. So the reason that's important to your um, kind of audience is, if they've worked in direct spend and indirect, they'll be really tough negotiators, like really, really tough, because they've dealt with the very core of the business. And every cent they spa- they, they save, if you're buying a hundred million of something, is a material mm. impact on the bottom line. Yeah, straight to the bottom so, line, isn't it? Yeah. Straight to the bottom line. So basically, look at the people that you're dealing with, as you would with any kind of opportunity, look on LinkedIn and just look at their background. So that's kind of the first thing. Mm, okay. Um, second thing is about them as as people, they tend to be very numerate. So you don't tend to last very long in procurement if you're not numerate, because you have to like analyze your category of spend. You have to work out, you know, who you're spending money with, uh, how much you spent with them over a period of time, uh, what the unit pricing is. So you're pretty adept with a spreadsheet. Uh, so you'll collect data out of your SAP system and you'll be analyzing it using spreadsheets, using data analytics tools. So you'll be very numerate. So again, be careful. If you are, so if you're the lead creative in your agency, and often founders are you know, highly creative uh, in their, uh, their company, you may want to bring with you someone that's slightly more analytical mm-hmm. um, to act as a kind of a, a check and balance with you to make sure that, because the procurement people, by the time you get to meet procurement, if you're selling a um, brand campaign to a large company, the marketing director's buying the inspiration. They're buying the aspiration, the inspiration. They're buying the kind of the future. And they're buying 
the, the secret sources, I'd call it, that you've got. The problem is the procurement person's not doing that. No. So they're a much more selling, rational uh, thinking thought process, isn't it? Much more rational, much more process oriented, much more governance led. So you've got to adapt your kind of um, your sales approach when you meet procurement um, to when you're meeting uh, marketing. And that's kind of the next point about kind of um, not just who they are, but how powerful they are. Don't believe that uh, marketing can override procurement. Back in the day, 15, 20 years ago, procurement were kind of like just get the contract signed. With corporate governance changes over the last 20 years, what's happened is procurement are now unequal at the table often. So the marketing director is not going to sign off on your piece of work if procurement say there's a problem or there's a better alternative. Because although they could possibly push it through, when it comes to you invoicing, procurement own the purchase order system. No purchase order, you can't get paid. Good luck getting paid, yeah, absolutely. You know, and so when, if you're in in an agency, you've got a great opportunity, you know, it could be transformational in terms of your your business. And marketing say, I've got a few problems with procurement. Could you just kind of like get going and I'll in the background sort it out? Be really careful. Mm. You, You may well get two or three months in with a work in progress bill of 20, 30, 40,000 pound. And then your buyer says, your, your, your economic buyer, your budget holder says, I can't get it through procurement. At which point you're totally we'll... screwed, to use a technical you're term. Yeah. To use a technical term, you are screwed. Yeah. What they'll have found is they can't load you onto their, uh, what they call their, their P2P system, their procurement to pay system. And if they can't load you onto the system, when you invoice, there'll be what we call a no match. Invoice turns up, um, procurement uh, or the automated system increasingly in AI would look for, well, where's the purchase order number? I haven't got one. Can't, well, it just gets rejected. Can't pay it. Yeah, absolutely. So how, what does that relationship between marketing director or marketing function and procurement function look like? Because historically, I mean, in my background, I've worked with lots and lots of very large tech brands, um, all of whom right. we've had to work through procurement to get invoices paid and sometimes that's a smooth ride and sometimes it's not and sometimes you find that the marketing team is completely frustrated with their client uh, colleagues in procurement because they want to pay their agencies they just can't make it happen it's a very very frustrating kind of conflict within their organization it what's that kind exactly. of what does that typically look like because it feels like as you've said there that procurement's been kind of elevating itself to a position where it now sits at the same level as as the the spending department as marketing is often called um what, yeah. what what's that how, how does that work in the modern uh, enterprise i suppose so in a, so in a modern enterprise um and this is kind of a, i'll give you a kind of a, a, a typical view um but it obviously it will vary by individual organization but typically now what happens is the category lead within marketing and the uh, the marketing budget holders, they have got, uh, I would call it a peer-to-peer relationship. Because what's happening is, is that if marketing are holding a budget, you know, take, a, um, take an automotive company. So take Volkswagen. You know, imagine Volkswagen spend on um, kind of promotion, uh, on online and traditional mm. print and TV, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. So that kind of money going out the door, the the marketing budget holder and the procurement lead in marketing are going to be pretty close. Mm. What they're going to do is, um, again, another kind of phrase that you might hear, there'll be a category plan. So marketing procurement, as they are called, and I was at a conference two weeks ago where there were 100 marketing procurement people uh, in a room, and it was a conference around where the future of marketing procurement is going. Brands like Adidas and IKEA and huge global brands. And they were all talking as marketing procurement professionals on a peer-to-peer basis about where the kind of trends are. And so what you'll find is, is that that category plan, as they call it, so marketing procurement will own something called a category plan. If your category is, let's say it's broadly uh, digital marketing, then the marketing procurement person that owns marketing will have a category plan that says, um, how much am I going to spend in the next one, two, three years? What's my category strategy? So what's my kind of like strategy for engaging different suppliers? 
what's my in-source versus outsource model? Um, which suppliers do I intend to use? And that plan will be signed off with the marketing budget holders. So they'll jointly kind of own that plan. And what you may find is, is that um, every three to five years, that category plan gets updated. So marketing budget holders and marketing procurement will get together and they'll redo the category plan because the market moves on. And what will happen is they'll say, well, we intend to reduce our, our unit cost at a very, very high level or our ROI. We're going to increase ROI by 5%, 10% or we're going to reduce our spend and get the same output by 10%. If you suddenly get what we call an RFI, a request for information across your desk from a company, what they're doing normally is they're finding out about the market. They're exploring what's going on in the marketing, digital marketing mm-hmm. world. Okay. An RFI, a request for information, often comes out when someone's redoing their category plan. And it's not a formal request for you to put in a proposal. It's really that. It's a request for information. It's kind of drawing up a short yeah. list of who you might wish to appoint at some point yeah. in the future. In the future, maybe. Something you said there kind of sent shivers down my spine a little bit there. <laughs> <laughs> but, and I think I'll tell you which bit it was. Uh, category, The category plan includes the list of suppliers you're going to work with. And that might be updated yep. once every three to five years. So from from my agency point of view there, I'm thinking, well, if I'm not on that category plan for, I don't know, let's pick um, IBM because I've used them a few times. I've got no opportunity to get on that plan for the next three to five years. Why would I bother trying to sell my services to that company? (laughs) Very good question, Andy. Great question. So um, there's kind of two answers to this. The The first answer is working with procurement and working with large enterprises is a long run Mm. game. If you're thinking of working with a FTSE 250, my advice is start to get to know procurement, start to get to know the budget holders really early on. Because it might be, it might be, you know, two to four, five years before you can actually work with them. Crikey. That's number one. It's a long, long term. That's really interesting because I talk to a lot of agencies who are struggling with their pipelines and they say, well, we should be able to get our uh, you know, new business going within the next sort of three to six months. And, and in my mind, I'm thinking, no, that's really unrealistic. You know, you're looking at at least 12 to 18 months. But what you're saying there, Correct. for if you're targeting the much larger enterprise, you've got to think even longer term than that. You know, it's a kind of two to four year investment or sales cycle here if you want to start getting onto the roster of those big brands. So exactly. So it, so let's talk sales strategy for a second, um, given that you're in that kind of, you know that market and so do I about how you build a sales strategy. Um, if you've got a short-term sales problem, what you absolutely would not do is target Credit Suisse, BNP Paribas, Shell, BP. It's a waste absolutely. of your time. Unless you're on their, what we call preferred suppliers list already, then don't bother. Um, go for a, um, a large SME. Go for a company that's turning over, you know, 50 million, 100 million, 200 million, because it's unlikely they have a procurement person. It's possible, but if they do, it's one person normally, and they look across all of the spend. It's a much easier way of yes. getting in. Yeah, they've yeah. got much shorter uh, or much greater constraints on time as that procurement person. If it's an individual looking after exactly. a 50 million pound business, you know, they've got a lot of work on. Yeah, and they're just much mm. more agile. They'll make decisions mm. quicker. So yeah, so if someone's looking for how do I boost sales in the next six months, uh, then yeah, yeah, make sure you're targeting the right kind of organisations. Yes. Also, don't target public sector. You know, don't go in and think I'll go and target local authorities. Bad idea. <laughs> public sector, you know is far worse than commercial sector procurement. Do you know, I have to say I made a decision years ago never to target that sector. It just didn't seem to make sense. (laughs) Every time I thought about it, policy would change. And then it's like, oh, okay, there's a whole area of spend gone. Uh, I'm just not going to bother. But on that note, actually, there's something to add in there, Mike, as well. It is, you know, if you do want to work for the large brands, um, you know, one way around that is to go and talk to the bigger agencies that they're already working with 
and try to exactly. partner with them. So, for example, um, we did a really good campaign with Shell a couple of years back um, where the agency on record, I think, was Edelman. And then they outsourced a part to a partner of ours called the Vision Network. And then we took on the actual execution yeah. piece for our agency, Claxton. So we got that great big brand. We did some fantastic work. But we didn't have that direct relationship. So it didn't have to go through that procurement puzzle. It's a great tip. Absolutely, definitely. Um, so uh, always where you can. Uh, so we do with uh, one of the agencies I work with, same thing. So we've got a contract uh, with a very big bank, but it's not our contract. Yeah. We're a subcontractor to another agency. So a tip I'd say on that, by the way, is um, if you do that, um, find other agencies that you could work with that culturally are, are, are a decent fit. Don't try and do it with WPP or with MNC Saatchi because you'll probably get eaten. Um, same with the consulting firms. You know, years ago, I tried doing subcontract relationships with PwC, with KPMG, E&Y. And the problem is they just want to eat your lunch. Yes. They don't really want you in the way. So what they'll do is, at best, you'll get one deal. They'll put alongside a couple of consultants with your team. They'll suck you dry of knowledge. And then next time, they'll do it themselves. And you can't blame them. Uh, they just want to maximize their share of wallet. So, yeah, pick your partner yeah. carefully. Yeah, yeah agreed. But that's a great way of getting on. If you're not on the, so you'll hear me say PSL a lot. So, you know, for clarity for the audience, you know, the preferred suppliers list, procurement own that preferred suppliers list. And that's part of the category plan, I guess. Part of the category plan. And it's part of just business as usual for procurement. They have a database. If you're not on the preferred suppliers list, then it's not that you can't work for the organization but it's much yeah, harder. Yeah, I agree. You know, and, and uh, over the years of running my agency, I managed to get on the preferred supplier list for quite a few big brands. Um, and when I first started out, I managed to get to a contract with Xerox really early on. And, and that was an interesting process of being contracted by Xerox. Um, and yes. I worked with them for a couple of years and then that, that work dried up because the person moved on to Pastures New. Um, and then about uh, 10 years later, I got a letter from them saying, um, we've reviewed our preferred supplier list and we decided to, you're too small, so you're being excluded. I didn't even realize I was still there. So, <laughs> so it's interesting that I'd still been there all that time. I could have been going back to approach them for more work and positioning myself to take on work because I, I would have been an easier choice for them. You would. And, I, and that's, uh, again, a great point about active and passive PSLs. So that PSL, um, some one of the very large banks I worked with, they had at one point they had 120,000 suppliers on their PSL. And what they realized was when they did some very basic analysis was of that 120,000 companies that were on their PSL, about 15 to 20,000 were active in the last 18 mm. months. So what they did was <clears throat> they sent letters out to 80 or thousand companies saying you're delisted because you've done no mm. work with us. So, you know, there's a weird KPI inside large corporates, which is the number of suppliers on the PSL. And that's because um, agencies or companies that are on their PSL that are not active, you still have to do some kind of maintenance. So big companies realized, actually, um, companies that are on our PSL that are not billing, um, that we're not using, it's more cost effective for us to just kill Yeah, them. absolutely. In the nicest possible sense of the word, kill them. Yes, I agree. <laughs> You just delisten. Doesn't mean you can't get back on, but it does mean it's going to be quite hard to get back on because now you've been delisted. Well, how on earth you spent all that time getting on the PSL and then you did no work with the company, and now mm. you're off the PSL. So you've got to rebid to get back on it again, which is difficult. By the way, on PSLs there is something you can do. Most large corporates you can do um, kind of one-off deals. So off PSL um, exclusive deals. Uh, that are normally small value, kind of twenty to thirty thousand uh, pound uh, projects, where you've got you know demonstrable expertise in a very particular area that's an urgent problem for you for them. Um, they may well engage you on that particular project, but they may not put you on the mm. PSL because they'll say, "Look, this is a spot piece of work. It's a one-off. It's a spot piece of work. Um, you are an expert in your in your area. We want to use you." But that doesn't mean you're on the PSL. Mm. But it does mean now you, you've got to know a few people and you've got an opportunity. 
I can see how that would happen, uh, certainly when you're a deep expertise in a particular area. And I think that that kind of supports the, the, the conversation at the start there where we talked about sticking to your knitting and having that focus and being the, the expertise of, expert in your domain. Definitely. Can I also, um, I've got some myths, Andy, which I could kind of like perhaps explode um, on the podcast as well about. Let's blow them up right now. Myths about procurement, <laughs> exactly. So um, there's a kind of, I've got kind of four perceptions, and then I'll also give you the kind of reality. So there's definitely a perception that procurement only care about beating me up on price. The whole thing's about beating me up on price. That's categorically not true. Um, it is about kind of how much they paid last year versus how much is in their budget. Uh, and it is about how they can increase their ROI. And it is about obviously a savings mm. target. So when, when agencies say this is just all about price, it's like, well, price is a component. But what they're, trying to, what they're trying to get to, the outcome is I want to increase my savings or I want to increase my ROI. And the second thing to that is, in terms of exploding a myth, is the things that procurement... So I've written a little um, a kind of a non-scientific uh, procurement success equation. Okay, so good. This is in my... I've got a, a guide I think I've sent you, Andy. Uh, you can send it out to your audience, uh, which is a um, free download. Uh, it's on a, um, it's on my platform, uh, .com. Uh Send out the link. You can download it for free. All I want is if you give me your email details, that'd be great. And then download the guide. And in there, you'll see something called procurement success. What they're looking for is procurement wants savings or ROI. Um, plus, they want innovation. Plus, they want quality. Plus, they want reliability. But they want those components at a, a manageable risk profile. So it's divided by risk. So whenever you're doing a deal with a big company and you meet procurement, a, a really interesting tactic you can use is just think about those different aspects that they're trying to negotiate around and work out what the weighting mm, is. Okay. So is this more about savings or is this more about innovation? Or is it more about they've got a quality problem with the existing provider, which is quite common? And they're trying to improve the quality of service delivery. How do you work out what their priorities, Mike? Are you, can you just kind of drill into that in the classic Absolutely. sales? Yeah. Okay. Classic sales technique. So I was trained in issues-based consulting. Um, so the kind of like the uh, spin uh, selling techniques I was taught. Yeah, love spin selling. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, spin selling is great. It's a very simple technique. It works really well. Uh, so it's exactly that. It's like kind of, you know, what are the problems they're trying to solve at the moment? Um, and you know, get a feeling out of uh, procurement and your budget holder. You know what's the emphasis here? What, what what's really important? Procurement will always say it's very important. This costs less than last year's number, and then they'll say, but also, you know, we've kind of realised that there's some innovation in the marketplace that we're not taking advantage of. So we're really keen on you because you have an innovative SaaS-based mm. solution that solves all our problems. Get into that kind of dialogue is what I recommend. I think you have to get there because if 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 the conversation stops that we have to see a saving based on last year's number as an agency, that's really tough because from an agency point of view, I've spent a year or more getting to know your business, getting to know how you work, working with your systems, building my team, building our expertise in your business. And now you're asking me to put the prices down because that doesn't really make sense. So I think... For, from an agency and a procurement point of view, you need to find another basis on which to have that conversation. And innovation sits very nicely, I think, with most marketing people. Yeah. And I think I would say on that point, Andy, is that if, if procurement say to you, we, you know, let's say you're at the end of your contract, so it's a 12-month contract, you might have a three-year framework agreement, it's a 12-month mm -hmm. contract, and you're up for renewal of that 12-month contract. Procurement are going to say, I'm looking for savings. I want the quality of delivering. It's gone really well. We love the innovation, but I do need to get some savings out of this. You have to engage with that conversation. Mm. You can't ignore that conversation. And what procurement are doing at that point is, uh, so another simple tool that we use um, is called BATNA. And BATNA is the best alternative to a negotiated agreement. So again, for your audience, if you haven't read a book by William Yuri, which is U-R-Y, it's called Getting to Yes. Okay. Uh, he's a Harvard professor, 
that's a kind of world-renowned negotiator. Um, and he wrote this book called Getting to Yes. And one of his principles was whenever you're negotiating um, on anything in life, you, you always need a best alternative to a negotiated agreement. Because what that does is, if I'm negotiating with you, Andy, and I'm looking for a certain deal structure, I'd be very wise to have in the background someone else I'm talking to, if it's really important to my business, that I'm also trying to negotiate a deal with. So if I come across a red line with you that neither of us can get past, I've got somewhere else to go. And procurement are doing this all the time. And it's not devious. It's not underhand. It's just common commercial negotiation. So by that other person, you mean another agency or you mean another person within my agency environment? No, another agency. So you'd be looking at if it's a contract renewal and I've got a PSL and let's say it's SEO services. So on my SEO services, which is a subcategory of my marketing category, I will have probably half a dozen SEO agencies. So when I'm renegotiating your contract renewal, I will be talking to probably two other agencies that do SEO work that are on my PSL. Because I need to have a viable alternative if I can't get a negotiated agreement with you. So how likely do you think it is then as an agency, if I'm if I'm renegotiating a contract um, or if I've been invited to, to tender for a contract, I should be aware that that's a competitive environment, whether I think it is or it isn't. There will be at least two or three other agencies that are um, competing for that business. Correct. And um, I always say, and I was taught when I was, you know, being trained as a salesperson many, many years ago. Um, if you ask who's the competition and they say there isn't any, it's just you, don't believe them. <laughs> there is always competition. I, I, and I think that, um, you know, you'd be a bit naive to think that there isn't, but you do have to dig into that. So I was having this chat with someone the other day about a pitch process, which is slightly different to this, but in, in a pitch yeah. environment where, you know, what are the rules for whether you will or won't engage in a pitch environment? One of my rules is always that if there are more than three other agencies involved in that pitch process, I'm not going to take part because my chances of winning are significantly reduced and the investment's not worth it. But it's the same here. If you're having that negotiation with your procurement, your client's procurement team, you need to know uh, if there are two or three or four others. You know, it it does change your, your negotiation strategy somewhat. It definitely does. And there's two other points I'd like to kind of add to that. The first one is um, the uh, competition might be internal. So there's quite a big swing at the moment towards in-housing. So we're seeing a definite trend towards um, large organizations looking at their marketing services and they're chopping up the value chain. So they're taking bits of those uh, marketing services and saying, right, okay, what do we deem to be more commodity? So it's the executional stuff, isn't it, that's going in-house and the strategies remaining external? Correct. And that means that actually if you're in the kind of space of you're a niche provider, you're very strategic and you're high value add, you may well be able to charge a premium because they're in-housing the commodity, but they're prepared to pay for specialism. Mm, But it means contracts are probably going to be smaller in shorter term. But yeah, the competition can come from other agencies on the PSL or it can come from uh, in-house teams where they're working out the in-source versus outsource. Something else I want to like, uh, another myth, another great myth that's worth exploring. We're on to myth two. Okay, go on. Myth number two, which is I find really common. Um, So the perception is the terms and conditions sent by procurement are completely non-negotiable. Yes. (laughs) And you will see, if you get an RFP, it comes with these T's and C's, and they're 100 pages long. And the note from procurement says, um, please review the T's and C's. They're non-negotiable. And if you were to win the uh, process, then T's and C's will apply, full stop. What they don't tell you is the reality is, well, that's kind of untrue. So there's a kind of a bit of a secret that no one tells you, which is the schedules at the back of the T's and C's usually, from a legal perspective, override the master agreement. So if you've got things that you want to negotiate out of that main contract, put them into the schedules at the back of the contract and check with your lawyers that those schedules override the master agreement. That is a great piece of advice. 
and I th- and I think particularly for smaller agencies where you haven't necessarily got that expertise in negotiating contracts and you haven't necessarily got uh, your own counsel to know that yeah. that is significant. And and I think that point around the T's and C's being non-negotiable, I think on the whole that probably is pretty common to be able to understand that. It is. Um, but I, I do think, and I always think it's worthwhile flagging a few issues with any contract. So a few years ago, I was asked to sign a contract for a very large American tech company. And part of the, one of the terms of the contract was they reserved the right to record my sexual preferences. Oh my God. <laughs> How did that even get into this contract? But if I hadn't read it, um, that would have been, anyway, that would have been a, a term in the contract. So obviously I flagged that and it was removed, but. Yes, exactly. And illegal say as well <laughs> yes yes absolutely illegal now <laughs> probably then as well to be fair exactly so something else by the way on that t's and c's point what you'll often find uh, maybe less so now than perhaps three or four years ago is you'll get these terms and conditions and you'll start reading them so you're you're bidding for marketing services brand development and you get this t's and c's and it talks about um you know, uh, factory um, disaster recovery procedures. And you're like, I'm not a factory. Why is this contract in my hands? Hmm. And what happens is legal write one master services agreement that covers a multitude of different categories and they just send it to you. And so they don't expect you to have a factory disaster recovery plan, but what they do expect you to do is say, I've read it. It's kind of not relevant to me. And then procurement or contracts go, yeah, okay, get that. So uh, in the schedule, what you'd say is, um, clearly we're not a manufacturing company, but we do have a DR recovery uh, process, which is all our tools are SaaS-based, and therefore all our people can work from any location remotely within a secure environment. And we've got security checks and data protection checks, et cetera. Mm, okay. It's those kind of like subtleties that you're kind of like looking to discuss with procurement. Don't just think, this is ludicrous. I'll never get through this process. Bear with it, I think is the message. <laughs> you will get through it. I know it might feel like you're pulling teeth out at times, but you'll yeah, get there. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And the last one I want to, to kind of, so the last myth to kind of explode is uh, myth three. Go on. Myth three uh, is um, the RFP, so the request for proposal. Um, the RFP is only used to beat up the incumbent supplier. We're never going to really win. Again, it's untrue. An RFP process from procurement's point of view is if I've gone to the trouble of writing an RFP, I'm quite serious about doing something different because if I've got an incumbent and I just want to beat them up a bit, I wouldn't go to market with an RFP. I'd talk to a few agencies, find out what the market price is for the thing I'm buying, get some views on quality um, and come back to the incumbent and say, look, you've got three weeks to renegotiate with me. Uh, and in those three weeks, if we come to a deal, great. If we don't, then, um, yeah, well, that's uh, that's my choice. The, these are my fallbacks. Well, I've, I've got fallbacks in place. Yeah, okay. I, I think that- An RFP is actually, I really am quite serious about going to market. And I really am quite serious about switching. It doesn't mean I will switch, but I'm pretty serious. Mm. That's an interesting one as well, because I know at times... Uh, there are agencies that w- w- that are incumbents that won't respond to an RFP. They'd rather not, yeah. Um, because as you say, they think that they're just being beaten up on price or yeah. a- another aspect of their service delivery. So no- another like really favourite topic of mine because I know we've got kind of we've got about sixty minutes, about fifteen minutes or so left. Andy, is yeah. that right? Let's go for it. Yeah. Um. So um, uh, one of my kind of uh, I'm I'm intrigued by negotiation skills. So I think I've been on negotiation skills training. So bear in mind, your marketing procurement people that you are meeting with inside large companies, they are trained negotiators. Do not think that they are just kind of like, you know, naturals uh, and they happen to be good at negotiating. They would normally have been on some kind of negotiation skills training. Mm. And the reason for that is all corporates realize if I have trained professional negotiators, I am far more likely to create value than if it's uh, left to the kind of like ad hoc nature of human beings. Mm, so Absolutely. That makes, that's just common sense really, isn't it? Common sense. Just think about it as like, look, how would you create value while well, you train your, your negotiators? And so 
there's loads of material on the online about negotiation skills training and there's loads of different resources and i've pulled together in that guide some kind of common negotiating mistakes and then also what are the things that you can do to improve your chances in the negotiation process so let me just pick up a few of the kind of common negotiating mistakes. yeah let's do it so one big mistake is that um you know personalities get in the way of negotiating a deal and that's about an inability to separate the people from the problem. You've got to step back. So the key thing, if you're one of the audience members and you're an agency, um, this deals are often very emotive subjects. You're passionate about your business and your buyer, the marketing director, is passionate about the result. When you get to negotiate with procurement, you've got to put a different hat on because they're driven by different things. So if the chemistry between you and the procurement person is, you know, uh, let's say that you're a highly creative and they're an extreme rationalist, well, you need to get someone in the room with you, alongside you, who, who's much more of a rationalist. Mm, I agree with that. And that goes back to your point earlier, where, you know, make sure you've got someone who's analytical helping you with that negotiation as well, because let's face Absolutely. it, as agency people, most agency people start their agency because they're really good at a particular creative discipline they might be a good designer they might be a great web developer they might be a great media relations person that doesn't necessarily lend itself to being someone that's really good at the analysis correct Um, so i'm with you 100 percent there i think it's particularly where you're talking with the agency owner you know that's their that's their baby that's their life that's what feeds their family and puts turkey on the table at christmas time so they have a very different viewpoint from your procurement professional who is very rational very much thinking about their um, the numbers really exactly and that's also linked to a second mistake a very common mistake is that the uh, the entrepreneur owner uh, of a small medium-sized agency goes into bat with a large corporate uh, marketing procurement uh, professional and they go alone it's a huge mistake mm-hmm. take someone with you. yeah if you think they're a rationalist, I'm a rationalist, I can do this. Take someone with you just to take notes. Because in a 45-minute negotiation, by the time you walk out and you've gone for a coffee and you've kind of picked yourself up off the floor, you'll have forgotten quite a lot of what happened. No question. And I think that the person that you take with you needs to be somebody who is probably, you know, a finance director or that kind of ilk because they'll be used to talking about contracts much more so than you as the agency owner. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. So another couple of things, um, preparation, you know, a lack of preparation. So a huge mistake is agency owners busy. You've got a full diary. You've got a meeting scheduled with procurement at your client. Um, yeah, the night before something's blown up with another client. So you end up going to this meeting and in your mind on the train, you've kind of mentally prepared. But when you get there, there's a whole raft of things you've just not thought through. Yes. So sit down, take the time, and think through your negotiating strategy. Write it out. So on one of the courses that I run, um, I've got some uh, negotiation uh, preparation sheets, which people find really helpful, which is like, you know, th- 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 there's, a, there's quite a lot of things that you can think through that will definitely improve your um your kind of win-win position mm, when you okay. that sounds great uh, and you know what it's interesting you're talking there about um lack of preparation for meetings procurement i i think there's a real challenge within the agency environment where we we find ourselves not allowing ourselves enough time to prepare for most things and we're in an agency environment it can be quite hectic it can be that you're uh, to use a horrible phrase, firefighting all the time. You don't have the time to really take a step back and prep for most stuff, let alone a yeah. procurement meeting. Exactly. So I think that that I think there's a real need within the agency environment to find more time to get away from that sort of servicing client focus, uh, at least for the agency owner in any case. And the kind of last one maybe to touch on is, and it's a fairly, it sounds so obvious, um, but. You know, a common mistake is believing you have to make a decision in the room. You you don't. No one's forcing you to. And what procurement will do, a trained negotiator will try and force your hand with time. They'll say, look, I'm really busy, uh, Andy. Um, We're at the back end of our 45-minute session. Um, I need you to make a decision now on this pricing uh, matrix. 
So I kind of need I need ten percent out of that pricing matrix. Um, after this meeting, you, you won't be able to get hold of me for like another like four or five weeks. Can we agree? Crikey, and that's a pressure yeah. sales tactic, right there, isn't it? It is, and and that's it. Yeah, you know, it's a again. If you study negotiation uh, training, um, using time as a negotiating lever is a very common negotiating mm. tactic. It's not a trick; it's a tactic to get to something quickly. And my advice to you is, just don't say yes. Just go. I've heard you. I understand. I need to go away and think about this and come back to you with a, with, with a, a more considered response. And then they'll say, no, 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 you didn't hear me. It's now or never. And you're best saying, you know what? Actually, maybe it is never. It'd be a real shame because we've, we've come so far and actually we're quite near to a conclusion. Just, just give me 24 hours and I promise I'll come back to you. And most people go, okay. They've got it right. All right, fine. You know, they're not going to yield to my <laughs> time. Yes. Fine. Come back in 24 hours. So just buy yourself time to reflect. Yeah, I think that it's very difficult to make a decision when you're on the spot like that, or at least to make a, a smart decision. Having that time to come away, uh, digest what you're looking at signing there is, is vital. And I think, you know, 24 hours is, is at the very least you would need to to think exactly. through something of well it depends on the nature of the contract i suppose but if you're negotiating with procurement it's probably going to be a chunky contract so one other thing i've got a question for you Andy. Mm, please um, um hang on a minute it's my show so um so you're negotiating a deal uh and you're doing some preparation work and you've uh, you're walking into the first session uh with procurement um who should make the first offer around the kind of like let's just call it price who should make the first offer on what this is going to cost what's the price should procurement make the first offer or should you make the first offer now that's interesting because there's an old saying which i'll I'll get horribly wrong it's the person that makes the first move always loses Uh, but i don't know whether that's necessarily right it depends how confident you are on your pricing and how sure you are as to the value that you're going to add for that pricing. So I would say it depends on um, who you're meeting with and what your how confident you are on your position. Okay. So what would you say? <laughs> how wrong am I? <laughs> would you make the first offer or would you get procurement to? I would you- um I yeah, that's interesting because I don't like awkward silences. And sometimes when you're negotiating with someone, they're sitting there staring at you, waiting for you to make the first move. As a more emotional than rational person, that's a difficulty for me. So I would ask my finance director to uh, <laughs> to put to put his foot forward. <laughs> very, good, very good response. So uh, there's actually the, there is some science behind the uh, the answer. Oh, good. So a lot of research was done. There's a great resource online. It's called Pon. So it's called the Program on Negotiation Skills. Okay, and it's a um, a kind of a, a an informal joint venture between Harvard Business School and Harvard Law School. So you've got here two powerhouses globally of um, kind of uh, research, uh, and what they've done is this Program on Negotiation Skills. They combine all of their legal skills with all of their business skills to run these negotiation skills training courses. Brilliant, and they are. So I went on the one in Harvard about, God, eight, nine years ago. And I think they now run one in London. So you can go on the London version instead. Oh, brilliant. Okay. Really, really good. What the research says, and you'll, you'll hear contrary research to this, but what their research said was the person that makes the first offer anchors the deal. So it's the complete opposite of what I said. That's interesting. Correct. Exactly. And it is very, you know, you, you, you're in the majority, Andy. Most people think the other party should make the first offer. Mm. When they did the research and they looked at who basically won the biggest uh, kind of prize, it tends to be people that anchor the deal uh, first. But hang on a minute. What now, do you mean by anchors a deal? So they win the contract they get, or they get it on the terms that they're looking for? So by anchoring a deal, I mean... Um, there is more likelihood of you getting the deal that you're looking for if you set the anchor points. Okay. And the anchor point can be more than price. It can be price. It can be service level agreements. It can be the quality standards. It can be deliverables. It can be whatever elements you're negotiating around. You're better off 
being the first person to put that forward. And I, and I think now, the only way you can do that is if you have a really solid understanding as to what you need to get out of that deal, you know, in absolutely. terms of your margins, your pricing and all that good stuff. Definitely. So again, it's the prepared mind. Yeah. There's a caveat on this. So if you do that with procurement, I would say you should. You should anchor the deal. Um, if procurement's view of where the price point is is a long way away from where you are, there's a danger that the procurement person will shut their book and walk out the door. Because what I call the zone of possible agreement, it's not my phrase, it's another kind of Harvard phrase, yeah. the zone of possible agreement is too wide. So the way, to, the way into this kind of like negotiation with procurement is, with your budget holder, the marketing budget holder that you're talking to, make sure that you've kind of price qualified the range really quickly. And again, I'd put your offer on the table first with your marketing budget holder and just check you're in the right ballpark because they won't talk to procurement probably unless they've got a budget that would bear your pricing mechanism that delivers their outcome. Yeah, I agree with that. I I think, you know, get a sense check on where your budget comes in. Is is it within, uh, I love that zone of possible agreement, you know, is it within the realms of imagination I would normally say as to what your marketing person is expecting and what your procurement person can sign off? Exactly. Okay. Again, look online, ZOPA, so Z-O-P-A, zone of possible agreement. There's some research on that. And it's really interesting. Again, I cover it on one of my courses, which is you've got to work out the, again, the research says um, if the zone's just too wide, then you'll, you you won't reach agreement because it's too far to travel. So you've got to work out what that zone is and make sure that when you put in your first offer, you're at the higher end of the zone, but it's within reach. Okay. And then obviously, yeah, can I, I guess one final point on negotiating for me uh, is around you know, starting off by asking open questions. So a lot of value gets created in negotiations by asking open questions, trying to increase the size of the pie. So you've probably heard about this, Andy, but you know what most people see is they see a fixed size pie that they're trying to get a slice of. Mm. What brilliant negotiators do is they try and extend the size of the pie. So a good example of this is let's say you're negotiating on you know brand development and you're looking at um, – you know, a particular product uh, that a large corporate's got and they want to do a rebranding exercise for a particular product, a way of expanding the pie is you start to expand it slightly outside of brand. You go, well, maybe that category director you're talking to has got four or five brands and maybe two of them are up for grabs. So it's like, well, if, if I could work on two with you and we've got experience of both those kind of products, maybe we could get to a, a better value proposition. Mm-hmm maybe beyond brand what about kind of brand activation you know we've we've got some real expertise in brand activation um you know could we wrap that in with the service so you're just trying to you're trying to expand the scope of your services expand the size of the pie and allow allow procurement to negotiate a better deal with you that actually gets them a better roi Mm -hmm. savings and gets you a bigger project. That's a really nice way to look at it. And I think that the, the only way you're able to do that is if you really understand your client or your prospective client really deeply so that you can look for those those areas where the pie can be expanded, I suppose. But um, yeah. yeah, I think that's a really powerful negotiation strategy. I like that a lot. So a, a couple of takeaways for me uh, kind of after the session, the kind of things, uh, and then I'd, I'd love to hear, Andy, what your view's been uh, of this kind of hopefully not rambling conversation. Um, <laughs> So I think the three things for me as a kind of takeaway are um, procurement have a different agenda to your kind of decision maker, i.e. your marketing budget holder. So understand their objectives before you engage with them, number one. Number two, negotiation is more of a trained skill than it is a just generic human trait. Um, So learn to be a good negotiator. And then thirdly, I think is kind of prepare, prepare, prepare and then prepare again. Yeah, the prepared mind has a much higher likelihood of getting a great outcome. So I hope that's been useful to your audience and, uh, you know, a, a bit of a kind of introduction to how we as procurement people often think and behave 
and why we look so stony-faced when you meet us. <laughs> Mike, it's been hugely interesting and much more so than uh, I expected a conversation around procurement would be, <laughs> if I may be so rude. You, you absolutely, I get that quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's your your skill in telling a story that helps to make the subject very interesting. And I think that our listeners, if you're in agency land or even if you're in in-house looking at how procurement works you might learn you will learn a lot from this i think there's yeah, huge value in it and I'm, i'll be delighted to share the link to the uh, the resource that you mentioned and a couple of those books i think mike as well we really ought to and we've talked about this but we really ought to kind of firm it up is to put a session together for uh, my agency squared community where people can come along and spend a day with you and and learn more yeah. about this stuff so we'll perhaps talk about that offline um yeah lovely. but i mean mike just thanks so much for coming on the show it's been really enlightening really interesting i'm, I'm so pleased you joined us and um i i know that people will get value out of this so um it's been great thank you very much yeah, absolute pleasure delighted to do it thanks andy